the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Starting with Mr. Brandon Birdseye. Brandon. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Good to see everyone. Next, we have Mr. Nick Peck. Oh. <laughs> no. oh. is, that, is that what we waited for? Yes, that's what you waited for. You waited uh, for that because uh, I couldn't find my Santa hat that I bought today that I was going to be wearing to surprise everyone and get uh, on. You know what? We'll do one more before Christmas, so you still still get a chance. Well, forget it. All right, let's try again. Hello, Mike. Hello, gentlemen. Happy holidays. Hey, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, we have the Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. I've Never Missed a Show. This is show number 218, Rob Arbiter. Rob. Hey there, Mike. Hey, everybody. Rob, it's good to see you, brother. It's good to be back. And today we have an amazing guest. I mean, amazing. This is probably the nicest guy in, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, and I had the pleasure of working with him for about 12 years. And uh, he wrote a fantastic book that we're going to be talking about. Um, this is Mr. Stephen Smith. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Not good to be with you all. Thanks. It's so great. Seriously, Stephen is such a nice guy that his emails – even if he had notes, just were the nicest thing Aww. in the world. Especially if he hated something you did, he like would just be so nice, and he you'd have to redo something. <laughs> but, but at least he was nice. <laughs> I loved Mike. I loved going into the room because at the end of a project, when you fear hear that final sound mix after you've gone and you've waged every battle, one of you lost a lot, and but you're finally getting it done. And to hear a great sound mix, it all comes together. It feels oh. real for the first time when you hear that sound. Oh, it's well. It's, it's always been a pleasure to work with you, and we did some really great projects. One of my favorites was. Um, the the sound of music. Um, and we Which did the, one? It seemed like every five exactly. years we did it again. The, the five, not the seventy fifth, <laughs> but the one before that, because it was really it was really interesting and just uh, all the you get to know it and how they you know post production and stuff. It was yeah. it was a pretty. There's a lot of really good things in there. So yeah, we worked on a on a couple of really fun uh, projects and uh, yeah. So Stephen, it's so great to have you here and we're going to be visiting with you because uh, Stephen wrote this amazing book um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But before we do that, um, I got to ask you guys a couple things. Uh, First of all, do you guys, do you read um, Bobby Osinski's blog? Are you, are you, uh, Bobby Osinski is one of our panel members who's not with us right now, but he, uh, he does this music 3.0 blog and, and he sends out his emails, but I just got to tell you, on this last one, he um, turned me on to a free plugin from Slate Digital called Fresh Air. Are you guys familiar with it? I recommend it. It's free. And it, what it does is it, is it opens up your high end without being harsh. So it's, I just want to – I love it. It's not heavy-handed. It just adds a little sparkle, a little sheen, and it doesn't – get harsh which is amazing and you know there's a lot of pro- plugins that kind of do stuff like that but this is really good and it's free so go to slate digital and get fresh air i just had to pass it on yeah hey mike have you used um clarifonics uh what's it called 
uh, from Kush is called the Clarifonic EQ from Kush no. Audio. It also does a similar thing. Have you, any of you guys used it? I was wondering if if it compares to this at all. Or I, you know what? I tend to not put anything up there because when I mix, I tend to take care of that in the mix. And some of the stuff that they've had that that you know some of the presets and like ozone and things like that get super harsh really quick, and yeah. you're like, Ugh. but I guarantee you, you guys got to check this out. We'll talk about it, you know, on another podcast after you guys check it out. But it's free and it's so so good. Like once you mess around with it, you're gonna it's gonna take your great mix and it's just gonna make it just a little better. It's just it adds some sonic magic. So I wanted to. I wanted to open that up with you. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we uh, start visiting with Stephen is, um, so during COVID, right, we're on another massive lockdown out here in, in California. And, uh, you know, it's pretty serious. And one of the things that I I started doing was I just, I wanted to get rid of a lot of gear. <laughs> I wanted to clean a lot of stuff. Because when you're home all the time and you just have stuff, and I know looking from what's behind me, it's like, yeah, sure you did. But I'm starting to, you know, get rid of stuff and i'm starting to look at like selling things and you know ebay and reverb and 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 uh, craigslist and i just wanted to open super quick have you guys ever sold anything and then regretted it have you ever got anything and then regret it because there's a couple things that i want to sell and i'm on the fence and i'm thinking i wonder if these guys have have ever sold it because i don't sell a lot so I'm like, hmm, but I just want to open up. Anybody ever sell anything? It doesn't even, you know, Nick, you're, you, oh, you bet. Um, I mean, some of them were early before we knew that they were hip. Um, I sold my first Fender Rhodes so that I could buy a Yamaha DX7. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, and then I sold a Roland JX3P, which was my favorite synthesizer ever. Oh my gosh. Um, but I didn't I have enough money. And then, you know what? Last year I found one on Craigslist and bought it. I was like, yes, I will, I will have my JX3P back. Um, probably the stupidest thing that I ever sold, but of course, I, how would I possibly know? I sold a Roland TB303 for $20. <laughs> Stupid! I know! <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Steven, that's a, that's a classic little box that now is kind of hip and cool, and it's, it's like he basically gave it away. I did. So. <laughs> how, about, how about you, Rob? <laughs> I had a few that I really regretted. I sold. Uh, I, I had bought all the things I'm about to list. I bought them when they were brand new, and some of them I ended up buying back. In, you know, buying again later. But uh, it was just because money was tight, and I was trying to upgrade. But uh, my first Juno 106. Mm. Sold. I sold an 808 drum machine, a 909 drum machine. Um, yeah, I, I regret. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, is at that time, you don't know these things are going to be classics. You just haven't used them for a while. And, so, and truly, back then, there was amazing things coming out all the time, you know. So, but, uh, oh, and uh, Wurlitzer. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> hey, Stephen, have you ever sold anything? It doesn't have to be music stuff, but have you ever sold anything and then regretted, you know, selling it? Oh, uh, I'm sure. Sure I have, but uh, it'll be <laughs> far too painful to think back on that. And actually, I, I am pretty happy getting rid of stuff, especially these days. Uh, I feel that the less I have, uh, the, the happier I am. I just digitized all my CDs, and I haven't gotten rid of the CDs, but just knowing that they live on something really small makes me feel, I don't know, a little less tethered to wherever I am, a little freer as a person. It's amazing how stuff 
can literally weigh you down. Like you Hell can get yeah. anxiety by having too much stuff, just having yeah. too much, like ugh, too much. And so I, like I said, I, I'm starting to clean, go lean in me and take, you know, technology. Even these guys, these guys are, I don't use these, this Tenoys, the ellipses, they're great speakers, but I prefer these that are right below it, which are the atoms. So I'm going to get rid of these guys. And these are really good speakers. It's just, I like these guys better. So, um, you know, it's, it's like, there's you're nothing. Finding, you're finding good homes for all these things though, right? You're selling them and uh, I'm going to, I haven't actually put any ads out yet. That's the thing. I'm, I'm yeah. like, I don't know if I'm going to go with reverb or Craigslist or eBay. <laughs> That's so. the real problem. So I've done a ton of selling on all of the above. And, um, I, in my opinion, the best place to sell musical gear is reverb. And the reason is because the people who are there are serious. They're not joking around. Um, the infrastructure of, you know, the reverb.com organization is outstanding. I have been on both ends of things. I sold a pedal to somebody and he didn't like it because part of it wasn't working. I was like, send it back right away. I'll take care of it immediately. And I did. And I've also been in situations where I bought stuff and it came damaged and broken. And then reverb was really great about following up until that all got set up. The problem is then in COVID, you're dealing with boxes and you're dealing with packing things up and going to the post office and or the UPS store and all of that. Um, yay. But Craigslist is a lot more immediate and it's good for really heavy things, you know, yeah. guitar amps and things that you don't want to send out, but then you're dealing with people. So yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm kind of I'm kind of stuck. It's like I want to do reverb, but I don't want. I'm going to do reverb probably local only because a lot of the stuff is heavy. Like these speakers behind me weigh a ton. Each one is just massive. So we'll see. I was just wanted to put it out there. That's just a little something, a little icebreaker to get everybody going. Um, Brandon, I did. I didn't ask you. Did you have you ever regretted selling anything? Nothing as classic as as uh, Rob and Nick, um, <laughs> but I do have a, just my quick selling stories. I've got a whole box full of old guitar pedals that I just don't touch anymore. And I've, it's been on my to-do list for two years now, like sell guitar pedals. And I just yeah. haven't gotten around to it. Cause it's like the I time involved to sell, make a couple hundred bucks off of guitar pedals is like, I don't know. <laughs> I tell you, if anyone, want, do- anyone want some old guitar pedals? <laughs> If you're going to clean house, you got to do it all at one time because it's like, I'm going to put in all this energy. I'm going to do it now so I don't have to worry about it ever again. But already some of the smaller things that I've gotten rid of have really been um, freeing and really allowed me to like not be a slave to stuff. And people, I think people get, even in their workflow, like in the studio, you ever notice, um, you ever notice uh, like, guys that use the same gear all the time to like when they work yet they'll have a rack full of all kinds of stuff but they will have um just the same signal chain the whole thing and it's like hey do you ever ever try anything else (laughs) you know so covid great time to kind of get things in order and don't be a slave to your gear so you know now's the time to for new beginnings right when we all come out of covid let's Come out, come out a better person. And one of the ways is just to get rid of some of the stuff that you have around that you don't have to be a slave to. Um, I say that, and then I look at Rob's studio longingly. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like... During COVID, actually, not this stuff, but uh, I've been trying to make sure that the trash cans are full once a week, like of whatever it is, like getting rid of old paperwork, getting rid of... Yeah. So... I don't even care what it is, but as long as the trash can full of stuff leaves once a week, I'm making progress. 
<laughs> That's great. Is, All right. is, is a trash can worth of stuff coming in once a week, though, or is it only that much <laughs> volume going talk out? About incoming trash can. We don't talk about <laughs> <laughs> Trying to lighten the load. <laughs> Really, trying to see if there's a net negative there or not, Rob. That's all, uh, you know. Like, like. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I have no idea how to segue from well, trash. I do. <laughs> Maybe not trash, but I will say that if it's a good time to throw things away, it is a good time to also sit back and read and to support <laughs> authors and buy new books. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Stephen wrote this amazing book. It's uh, Music by Max Steiner. And um, I'm going to let him talk about it. And I've got some questions. But really quick, Stephen, um, tell us a little bit about the book. Okay. Uh, well, I'll back up and say that I have worked mostly as a documentary producer in my life, and uh, as you mentioned, I had the good fortune of working with you, Mike, for about a dozen years, mostly doing documentaries about Hollywood. My background was on things like the A&E biography series, producing profiles of filmmakers, and uh, but I've always had a love of classic Hollywood. I grew up here in Los Angeles. My brother was a Broadway performer when I was eight or nine years old. He's quite wow. a bit older than I am, although has a lot more energy than I do, but uh, I was lucky to kind of move in that circles as a, those circles a bit as a kid, or at least meet some of the people involved in old Hollywood. And uh, for one of our family friends was a guy named Robert Osborne, who was then a columnist for the Hollywood Reporter, and yes. uh, of course then went on to host TCM. And uh, Bob and I worked together there for many years. So I've always loved doing things with new movies and looking at the past. And uh, when I was in college a hundred years ago, I when I realized I wasn't a good enough pianist to uh, become a professional piano player, I decided to write a book about a composer, and that was Bernard Herrmann, the great film composer, and great, yes, great sound innovator, and uh, he had died just a few years earlier, and so I still had access to uh, an amazing number of people who worked with him, all of his family, all three of his wives, mm. and uh, it, that was a great, fun eight-year experience that I started in college and finished out of it, and uh, flash forward, you know, nearly 30 years, and uh, a, a a good friend of mine is a wonderful writer named Gary Giddens. He was maybe the featured talking head in, I'd say, probably the, the most prominent per person in Ken Burns's jazz uh, documentary series because he's such a great writer about jazz. He's written many books, Louis Armstrong. He's Bing Crosby's biographer. Anyway, Gary and I became friends, and he said, how would you like to write a book for me? I'm overseeing a series for Oxford uh, on American figures, and many of them are people that should have had a book by now and somehow didn't, and he started naming a lot of really interesting people. And then when he got to the name Max Steiner, I said, stop okay, if we're going to do this, I'm in. That's who I want to do. And I'm sure some of the people if uh, are watching this saying, who is Max Steiner? Why should I care about Max Steiner? Well, Max Steiner has been called the guy who invented film music in the sound era. I would okay. say he's the person who pulled all the elements together, yeah. uh, much in the way that D.W. Griffith in the silent era took a lot of things like the close-up and other things and created kind of the grammar of movie storytelling, uh, but wasn't necessarily the first, but was the first great artist to do so politics aside. But uh, Max <laughs> Steiner was that guy who came from all these different worlds. He was born in Vienna to this incredible family. His father was decorated by the emperor of the Austro 
Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they were a big deal. Uh, then he he left Vienna, lived a colorful life in London, and then when World War I broke out, he suddenly was an Austrian in a country at war with Austria, so with no money, because he spent more money than he ever made, he jumped on a ship to America, worked his way up, became a Broadway conductor with Gershwin and all the top Broadway, you know, the great, the people who wrote what we now call the Great American Songbook. Max was the conductor slash orchestrator, everything for those guys. And then in the fateful year of 1929, when all the Hollywood movie studios decided they would officially stop making silent films and everything was going to be sound, uh, all these studios realized they needed not only actors who could speak, but musicians uh, and music departments. So Broadway was a logical place to sort of pick people, and uh, Max being a top person on Broadway at the time was asked by this new studio, this young studio of a couple of years, RKO, to come out and work for their music department. And uh, while Max was at RKO in the early 30s, uh, he convinced skeptical producers, studio executives, who did not want to have any underscoring in a dramatic film or a comedy or anything uh, to have underscoring in film. And I know that seems crazy at a time where everything from video games to commercials to movies and TV shows all have music under dialogue and music's an important component but right. sound was such a different medium in 1929 30 31 that even though people had only watched movies silent movies with music playing the whole time there was something about the realism of talkies of hearing people speak and hearing natural sounds that made these rather literal minded uh, new filmmakers say to Max over and over but Max won't the audience say where is the music coming Coming from, and this drove him crazy <laughs> for about two years because he, he did not think people would have a problem with it, and he got very lucky uh, because just when RKO was about to go out of business after a string of flops, and and remember the depression had just broken out. Uh, the depression had just happened and the movie studios were not doing well, and they just spent all this money converting to sound. Um, RKO was really on the verge of closure when they hired this young 20-something executive named David O. Selznick to see what he could do. And Selznick just came in like a bat out of hell and put all of these great movies into production, one after another. I mean, in the space of 12 months, he made a lot of classic films. And most importantly, as soon as he arrived and he met his musical director, Max Steiner, they had a conversation that probably went something like this. Max said, I've been trying to get these guys to let me have music in the movies. And Selznick said, I love music and movies. So you're right. Let's do it. What have we got to lose? And and right from the get-go, the first films that, that for which Max was allowed to write a full score, and by that I mean he wrote themes for different characters the way John Williams, say, would. Uh, he used orchestration in a very particular way to create mood. He was really sensitive, having conducted all those years on Broadway, to the human voice and how to write beneath the pitch of an actor's voice or above wow. the pitch. He actually would listen to an actor's voice and say, that Betty Davis speaks in the key of F, so we're writing above and below that. Wow. So and That's I should cool. Yeah, it's so cool. And and uh, he was 41 when he came to Hollywood. He had lived this whole adventurous life, not really being very famous, but being, you know, a working musician. And then talk about being in the right place at the right time. He's the guy in Hollywood when no one knows what to do and says, I've I've got this idea. And in that that breakthrough year of nineteen thirty two, he and Selznick's, you know, 
scored one great movie after another, and the culmination of that was the movie that Max started scoring at the end of that year, a little thing called King Kong. And uh, King Kong is often, yeah, there we go. And uh, you will often hear people say, well, that was the first movie that a, that a symphonic score was written for. Not true. Max had been doing it for a year, but it's the first classic film we remember that has a great score. And there's no question that I would say Star Wars and King Kong are the two movies that convinced more would-be film composers to become film composers. And, uh, and so th what Max did in those years of 32, 33 changed the movie business. He's the one who led studios to hire their own staff composers to create that infrastructure of orchestrators, sound recordists, engineers. And the other amazing thing, and RKO was, you know, they, they hired the right people, but they were kind of lucky right. that they hired an amazing sound uh, recordist engineer named Murray Spivak. And he was a musician. Yeah, Nick, Nick is nodding. He was like Steiner coming out of New York and he was a percussionist and he really understood music. And at first they didn't know what to do with him so they they didn't even have a music department and murray spivak said that uh for a little while they put him in the uh in the place where they kept tom mixes the cowboy star tom mixes horse and where in the barn where the horse used to be and they gave him a microphone and said we'll get back to you and spivak like all brilliant people got bored and he started hanging his mic out the window and recording sunset and gower and he'd tell people if they were recording a sound film hey any sound you hear record it i'm building a library uh, and so, so uh, that's how RKO built their library. And then when King Kong came along, and again, this is three years after talkies have really started, right. they're making the equivalent of like a Marvel movie. They've got a big John Williams score being written. They have got, uh, you know, sounds that no one's ever heard for these dinosaurs. It's like Jurassic Park. Like, what does a dinosaur sound like? <laughs> and for King Kong, Murray Spivak, and again, they had like three tracks of sound at this time. They're recording most sound live on set. Murray Spivak is recording animals backwards, playing them backwards and forwards, mixing these tracks. He's doing his own growls for Kong's more you know specific sounds he's sure. mixing them together he's like Ren Kleiss is now for David Fincher or someone and he and Steiner were just like peanut butter and jelly because when they would get to things like the famous climax of King Kong on the Empire State Building Spivak would take the recording that they had of the planes attacking Kong and in the sections where there's music and and planes, which isn't very much because Max deliberately dipped out the music for most of that scene. But when there's some overlaps, Spivak would change the frequency of the planes so they did not conflict with Steiner's music. Wow. And think about how many composers now, you know, understandably say, oh my God, I wrote all this music and you can't hear it because of the sound effects or they mix that's this or that. So, that's so true. And, yeah. and today, today there's that <laughs> constant battle between sound effects and music, sound effects yeah. and music. And, there is. And as, and as a mixer, some of the new tools that we have, well, actually they're newish, you know, like surfer EQs and things like that, where you can EQ based on tones as opposed to based on yeah. frequencies really help clean that up. But the fact yeah. that they were doing it back then is phenomenal. It's mind blowing. And I'm so lucky that not only were Max's papers saved by a great archivist and a friend of mine named James Dark, but uh, UCLA has most of the RKO papers. Uh, wow. and, and so you can go to the daily production reports. And, you know, and, and the USC has the papers for Warner Brothers, where Max later was a staff composer and scored Casablanca, The Big Sleep, Mildred Pierce, uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, I haven't mentioned that it, not only did he basically create the film score as we know it, he, he worked on about 300 films starting at the age of 41. And you've heard of half of them. 
and you've seen a third of them. Yeah. Uh, and but but uh, but but back to that time at, at RKO, it was so exciting going through all their paperwork, and and Max would write on his scores, not just musical notes. He'd write the dialogue, of what was happening, because he's using blank music papers. You know, so he's writing. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. You know, at the very end of the film, and he's writing what's happening, and he's using different color pencils for you know main theme and and counter melody or or you know different colors. He's trying to help his orchestrators who are taking his very detailed pencil scores, and he's writing down what instruments he's want. There, he, what he wants to use. He's taking. He's handing those off to his orchestrators who are creating parts that are put in front of the musicians hours later to that's, score that's all night from like 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. So these movies can be mixed. And it was this factory system, but he thrived on that. And the amazing thing is that within that very mm. short time, they created, you know, a, a very – I mean, you listen to King Kong, and yes, it's a, it's a very early soundtrack – but it, the complexity of it is astonishing, and I, oh. I tried when writing the book to see as many of these with live audiences as I could to see if they held up or if people laughed at them. And there was a screening of Kong appropriately at Grauman's Chinese where it had opened in Los Angeles in 1933, and I deliberately stepped out a little early so I could hear people walking out, and people were saying – Wow, the sound in that was amazing. How did they do that? And boy, that that score was great, and they were loving it. And I, it made me feel so good. And and you know, we we all movies have gone through a time where you have more music. Like John Williams brought back the big sounding score for a while. Sure. Now we're in a time where you have you can have that, but it's mixed really low. A lot of filmmakers don't like a lot of distinctive themes unless it's animation. Thank you, yeah. Disney. Thank you, Pixar. <laughs> uh, but, you know, things uh, wax and wane, but music has never left, and it really, I think, is movie dependent, and Max was fortunate because he understood that for an intimate drama, you would write a very different kind of score than you would for a King Kong or Gone with the Wind or a movie right. or a Betty Davis movie for Warner Brothers that is a big melodrama, you know, and if you and 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 Casablanca, I mean, that's a movie where you have very subtle cues and then you have music that just rips your heart out. And it was made to be seen in a theater with other people, but most of them play really well on TV. So uh, Max was really quite the the innovator and pioneer in, in both sound and music. You know, let me ask you, uh, so as soon as I knew you were going to be on the podcast, the first thing I did was uh, read a ton of the reviews of the book, which they're fantastic. Everybody loves the book. But the second thing I did is I actually, um, if you have HBO Max, King Kong, the original version, is on HBO Max. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I turned it on and I watched it. And I was amazed once you get the perspective that this guy's inventing all this like when you say the you know the the grammar of music he has the emotional underscore during you know the the love scenes and he has mm-hmm. the the tension and and all the things we take for granted yeah. and it's and it's so powerful that at the beginning of the movie um where there's hardly any score right it's just talking and talking and talk. i don't know how many minutes they go with, with i'll music. tell you in a second but go ahead well, it just feels so empty. Like, you're like, wow. I, that, that, like, well, it would seem like you're in a vacuum. 
you know, the modern yeah. audience. Yeah, and it's interesting because that was Max's choice. Uh, he wanted he writes this great overture, and it isn't just what they typically had, which is kind of generic melodrama music for a drama. Right. He gives you the themes for Kong, for Andero, for the island, uh, the sacrificial dance, and then he gives you this kind of sad version of Kong's theme at the very end of it that tells you this is going to be a tragic story. Then when it's in Manhattan, it's it, the movie starts in Depression, 1933. This crazy filmmaker Carl Denham's looking for his leading lady before dawn when their ship's right. going to leave with a bunch of bombs on it to go to an island no one's ever heard of. And Max said to the producer, Marion C. Cooper, let's not have any music in Manhattan. He said, there's plenty of sound. You've got cars honking. You've got a lot of dialogue back and forth. And he said, when we get to the island, let's bring in the music. And the first cue of the film is called A Boat in the Fog, and it's this beautiful kind of Debussy-like piece that as soon as you have a fade up and they're in the fog, you hear harps and you hear this kind of English horn that sounds like kind of an oboe playing very distantly, and it, it, it just very subtly takes you into another world, and then as they approach the island, the drums start, and Michael Giacchino, who's a big uh, Steiner fan, does a wonderful homage to this cue, the, the Forgotten Island, in Up. There's a similar cue, not at all a rip off but just and similar enough where you know he's nodding to Steiner and you hear this subtle kind of rhythmic sound as they see Skull Island's Great Wall and even in the dialogue they say listen there are drums and there's this kind of deliberate confusion between what we would call source music the music people are hearing in the movie and right. the score and yeah. Max is kind of subtly taking you into this world yeah. and by the time you see Kong it's like a big crescendo mark if you play music like it's the gradual acceleration of all so that when that big gate opens and Kong comes out, uh, you know, you're in this different place. And then the music is like, is, is just on fire. And he, they were smart enough to stop it in key places, like the big T-Rex fight. That's yeah. Murray Spivak's show. That's all the sounds created by him for <laughs> minutes. And then and, and Faye Ray screaming her lungs out. And then the music comes back. So again, for something that was so new, I marvel at the smartness they had about pace, about... Absolutely. The audience might be exhausted, so you give them a sound break. Now you bring the music back. And then the most complex sound design of early movies is Kong in Manhattan. That's when they pushed everything with multiple re-recorded tracks, screaming, car crashing, Kong, music. I mean, that was like you're trying to, you know, you're trying to have Hubble's telescope vision when you're Galileo. Right. And they pulled it off. It's truly an amazing um, movie when you watch it in context for the music because when the music, after the silence, you know, not silent, but there's lack of music, when it comes in, it's magical. I mean, it's yeah. just magical in the build and the, the whole thing. What I want to know is, and maybe you can, you can answer this, is I look at the stop motion animation and what they had to do back then for sync, right? Mm -hmm. Because they had the music – they had to sync the dialogue, and then they had to sync that against stop motion animation. That's it. That blows oh my, my mind. It's stop so motion, difficult. Yeah, stop motion that had live action put into it, and apparently they would. Um, for some of the times where you would see like Bruce Cabot underneath in a little cavern and Kong's above him, they would stretch a condom out and project the pre-shot material of uh, Bruce Cabot frame by frame, as Willis O'Brien did the stop motion animation of Kong. So you've got a little movie screen made of a, a condom. Apparently, this is all true. I'm not making this up. And so you've got to sync. <laughs> you've got to sync his sound as well. So yes, interesting 
interesting challenges on this film. But uh, yeah, and 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 they pulled it all off. I, I think it's stunning. And of course, you've all been very patient listening to me talk through all this. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. If, if any of you are interested in early film or what you pick up on in, in movies, how you think sound design has changed for better or worse. Well, let me, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it really quick to Rob because Rob is our resident composer and he's composed for, um, you know, film trailers. Monsters. He scored monsters too. When you, when you got the gig for, for the King Kong trailer, there's a lot of emotional, you know, I did Godzilla. I mean, Godzilla. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) But Godzilla has met King Kong. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. For, for, but when you did Godzilla, right. Like, what were the parameters that you were working on and did they give you anything like for the emotion? Like, did they give you any type of tenant, like make sure you do this and this and have the attention built here and things like that? Or were you just free to kind of to do it on your own? And then did you have any, did you, were you thinking about any of the classic movies and the classic scores that you heard when you were doing that? Cause well, that's I mean, a pretty I, awesome. I had a, been right? absorbing film scores since I was a little kid and uh, I have, pretty much a photographic memory for music. So I, when I hear something, it sort of gets locked in and I refer to it later. And so uh, I grew up watching tons of movies and sort of memorizing the scores and, and use that as a palette to pull from. The producers for all the Godzilla stuff did not give specific direction. The, the main, uh, I mean, they trusted my sensibilities. If they hadn't liked it, they would have said change it. But, uh, and these days, unlike back in the 30s, we would do synth sketches and they would, you know, you'd need final approval before you spend a dime to have a hundred piece symphony come in uh, because it's just so expensive. But the main issue that I ran into, uh, it was with Godzilla first, but with a lot of movies was just in the battle of music versus sound design. You should always assume you're going to lose as the composer. So on the first (laughs) Godzilla trailer and Godzilla was a, a good project because I did three separate theatrical trailers, which, Two of them were not in the movie. They were shot specifically for the, for the marketing campaign. So we did three trailers and 87 separate TV spots that each had different music. And so I got to really experiment because it was a year and a half. It was, it was like scoring several films worth of music. Yeah. Um, but the main issue with Godzilla is anytime he would roar, forget it. Nothing else was going to be heard. Or in the first trailer, his footstep comes through the roof of the New York uh, uh, Museum of Natural History. And I stupidly like wrote some music I thought people might hear as his foot hit the ground, and there was no chance. And I, Scott <laughs> Gertrude, who's normally on our panel, was doing the sound design for these. So we were, in a, we were locked in a battle, kind of like Godzilla and King Kong were. <laughs> what I learned as a composer is my moments to shine were right until something was going to happen and right after something happened. So I would always be trying to build that anticipation so that when Godzilla finally screamed, I mean, I could have the whole orchestra put down their instruments because it doesn't matter. They could be playing as loud as they want. You're never going to hear them. <laughs> I, would be, I was all about the transitions in and out of things that I knew were going to be sound design moments. And yeah. then we all got along great because they would play up the music because it was needed to sort of justify, you know, the big payoff in the sound design. So that was an early lesson I had to learn. I had learned it in theory before, but until you work on a project like that where you actually then hear it on a giant stage being mixed, uh, you realize, oh, this is a battle I'm not going to win unless I get smart about it. So I used to joke that, you know, all the most brilliant things about the first trailer I wrote right for when he steps through the roof. And so you never heard him, but 
<laughs> I do remember that spot for what it's worth. So I know that I'm, I'm sure the music had had uh, a lot to do with that. <laughs> and if you didn't notice the music, it means I did my job. The the most famous one of those trailers was one where there's an old guy fishing on a pier. Yeah. He sees a wave in the distance and then it gets closer and closer and closer and the music builds and builds and builds and then Godzilla appears and the whole dock explodes yeah. with it. And that got a ton of play. And I, and funny because there are still movies ripping off the concept i mean different <laughs> characters and stuff but uh and every now and then i'll even hear that music that i wrote for that because it's in sony's library so i'll hear it relicensed for use in other trailers but um the it was it was amazing because just in that moment like there's this huge anticipation as the guy's fishing and then he sees a little something in the water and then it's getting closer and closer and closer. So as a composer, that gave me plenty of time to shine. It just wasn't at the moment of peak action. Right. At that point, sound effects when and I think honestly, if there are gonna be sound effects at all, I'd be fine with having zero sound effects, but if there are gonna be sound effects at all, they need to win at that moment. I, I agree. I mean I've also had to function as a producer and and objectively the sound effects should win at that moment. It's just that as a composer kind of kicks you in the butt. I think, you know, sort of rule number one uh, of composers working for film is never put a timpani hit on an explosion. Just don't do it. <laughs> Just, <laughs> no one will ever hear it. Well, no that- one will ever hear it. It'll always lose. You don't try to get into the same frequency range as a sound effect when it's something in which you're matching picture like that. Uh, and one thing I, I also used to do, because um, I love playing with pitch, uh, and I have perfect pitch and everything to me in life is, is pitch related. And I would often, like if I had a character talking in a scene, I would often have an instrument playing a harmony to what they were saying as they were saying it. Um, and it was always a very subtle thing, but if you had a really quiet, like woodwind bed playing a harmony to what a lead character is saying, it just, it felt like everything was merging together. And uh, I used to love doing stuff like that. I miss, I miss, all the parts of it that we're talking about now, I don't miss how incredibly complex politically those projects grew over the years because there's so much money riding on it, especially like at the time of Godzilla, it was the largest marketing campaign in film history. And the main mark that it said it is the trailer, the first trailer I did was actually the loudest trailer in movie history and forced the entire industry to rethink all their levels because the trailer was so loud that all the theater owners turned down their sound system and then Independence Day, which was the movie it was attached to, played soft. <laughs> that was 98. So, wow. Uh, so but, you're responsible for that. Yeah, but then, uh, you know, then standards came out for how loud a trailer could be and everything. Got right. Out. But the, the politics and the complexity, because there's so much money on the line, I try to always think as like a purist composer, just about the creativity, but you never really could get 100% into the creative space because it it's such a business. You know, speaking of politics, back in, in Max's time, there was tons of politics going on with the whole music, right, Stephen? Because I read, like, the serious orchestras didn't really respect the whole movie biz. And which there, were, there were a lot of different battles going on. Some are different from the ones today. Uh, you know, some are similar. And, and one thing that is great about today is there is so much less snobbery, so much less prejudice against people who write for film. You know, composers now, I think, much more are seen as composers. Whereas as soon as you worked on a movie, it didn't matter if Bernard Herrmann had written a symphony or did other things. Uh, he was a quote-unquote film composer. And he loved movies. And it wasn't that he felt insulted 
being considered a composer who wrote for film. But what Bernard Herrmann and and Max both agreed is they were very different in many ways. But <clears throat> Herrmann was particularly articulate in saying. There's essentially it's that it's that Louis Armstrong line about two kinds of music. You know, there's good and bad. But but uh, Herman liked to say Mozart wrote music for dinner parties. You know, and is and Haydn ate in the kitchen after playing for the. You know, it's like let's not get too precious about these people. They were working musicians, right. writing for their time. And he said, any composer who has a dramatic instinct uh, is missing a great opportunity if they don't work for film or in his lifetime radio and television because he did them all he wrote music for the twilight zone he was orson wells's music director for wells's great live series that included uh, the war of the worlds broadcast that made him famous so herman was really eclectic and max worked in many different kind of live music forms but when he got to hollywood he just it was the right fit and for all of his complaining and quitting if he'd been working without sleep for weeks uh you know he knew it was where he belonged and he scored movies until he was 76 years old i think that's that's you know and he would have kept going but he lost so much of his eyesight and of course by 1964 65 you know the, the the world had moved on Right, But I will say, just a last thought on the politics of music, that when Max started writing for film, being one of the very first composers to write real scores for sound films, uh, he joined ASCAP thinking, great, I'll get royalties for this music also. And they said, oh, we don't handle that music. That isn't, that, we're not interested in that kind of music. We, we handle sheet music. We handle records, which in those days were 78 RPM popular song hits. And Max waged a battle from 1933 to 1960, amassing the forces of all the composers who became composers in Hollywood through first a group called the Screen Composers Association. And, and then it became more famous groups. And, 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 but he was the one who started that battle and was kind of a figure your head throughout to get residuals for composers and so every composer who who gets a royalty now i think has max to thank for part of that mm-hmm. and that's another story that had not been told and i felt so lucky i felt gifted that max not only worked on these great films and he was a colorful larger than life guy with flaws but really relatable ones uh he was married many times because he kept falling in love he was a gambling addict he was a <laughs> music addict he was a life addict you know everything in in major portions That's uh, awesome. but he also really cared about people he was loved and i think the fact that he fought for composers and musicians and said this isn't fair yeah. and won that battle Battle uh, is is just a great part of his story. You know what's amazing about about Max and and kind of as I was you know preparing for the the podcast, you know he goes in and basically back then there was no aftermarket for movie scores. I mean it was just, or movies or movies they played well, and that was it. Yeah, and so he did all this work for for like one offs and yeah. and I was just amazed that that the complexity and the talent that he went into some of those movies, knowing that that they weren't going to, A, that, um, let's face it, uh, people will see it, but it's not like if you were a composer and people heard your music all over the world and things like that. I mean, obviously the movies were were popular, but they're not, you know, they weren't nearly, you know, what we have now. And he did it like for one-off. And that to me is like, wow, that was incredible. 
It is. And I, I mean, we all, of course, have grown up seeing older movies on TV and, you know, home video and all those things. I, it's important to to let people know or be remind, remind them that when 98% of movies were made by Hollywood, they were considered over when they had done their run around the world. I mean, if it was Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind, it would get re-released 10 years later. But the rest of the movies, nothing. I mean, maybe an art house in New York for the biggest two or three for a couple of nights. But right. those movies were gone. So the fact that uh, a Max Steiner and Bernard Herrmann would write great scores, that, that the screenwriters, directors, and filmmakers would all do their best work, which they you know so often did, is amazing. It is also kind of heartbreaking. Uh, there was a letter Max wrote in the 30s when he was trying to, when he was fighting the, the, the ASCAP battle. And I'm paraphrasing a little, but he said, it's a hell of a thing to know that a man has written as much music as I have in my lifetime, and it is all dead. Because... As far as he was concerned, none of that music would ever be heard again. And that's why when later, if they would use a theme for a character in a 1953 movie that they used in the 1936 movie, years later when those movies were all on television, people would go up to (laughs) – on a the person you really didn't want to say that to was Bernard Herrmann, who could explode over nothing. Uh, But uh, but Aura Max and say, hey, you used that – wasn't that theme from The Three Musketeers? Didn't you use that later in Jim Thorpe American? And it wasn't that they were just ripping themselves off. It was that in the case of Max – he, was, he had as little as a week sometimes when he was a Warner Brothers composer to score a two-hour movie. Wow. So, of course, he if it was appropriate, he was going to use and rewrite a theme that he'd used for a forgotten flop movie 15 years earlier. <laughs> the amazing thing is he didn't do it more – that they all didn't do it more often because, you know, I, they, they, it's amazing to me that Steiner could have worked from the 30s through the 60s and had such a bountiful gift for dramatic in- instinct for melody because he was one of the melodists. Bernard Herrmann didn't write tunes he wrote the shower music from psycho you know he right, wrote right and he was a brilliant composer but he just proved that every composer didn't have to have a great melody in him well steiner was a great dramatist who had plenty of great melodies in him and it was a fountain that that ran pretty strongly for 35 years and 300 movies that's that's incredible rob were you going to say something yeah i was just going to say i was astounded to learn not that long ago that a lot of those movies from back then too like not only did the studios think these things were like one and done, they would destroy all the prints. Like there's, there are a lot of movies from back then that they didn't even hold on to one print of. No, it's true. If, if, for example, and that's especially true of the silent era, is that you know when, when they switched to talkies, there was active destruction of films by some studios because they just didn't want to take up the space for those movies. But, but one thing that did happen is if, a, if say, a major book or a, a popular book was optioned by the studio, they would try to get things just like now in perpetuity. But if the writer would say, well, I'll give you those rights for 10 years, well, 10 years later, a lawyer at the studio would say, oh, by the way, the rights are running out. Do we want to renew that or do you? You just want to junk that movie and sometimes the studio would say nah, just get rid of the movie that that stars we don't that's that star isn't even at the studio anymore we had him under contract but he's not popular now get rid of that movie so it, it really is amazing that things that were expensive that were big that were seen around the world could be thrown out and and that's thankfully less true of the sound era but it also is true of movies from the sound era and and we're lucky we're fortunate that so many of them survived uh, in in good prints and i will say that max it, this is another forward thing uh in those days in those early film days, music was recorded optically, you know, just like on film, because right. that's that's the way you had it clean. We all know that old records had 
hiss and pop and clicks. But if they wanted to check and see how the take was on the spot, they would do these acetate recordings where they just use a cheap, you know, system to create an instant record and play it back and think and listen and say, okay, you didn't hear that oboe squeak. We're okay. We can move on. Well, Max was the only composer of that period who kept the majority of those sessions. He kept those records for himself. And being a smart guy, sometimes he'd make them and with the studios, okay, give them to friends or other filmmakers and say, oh, here's a cue I wrote for this. But he kept them for his own archive. So I got to hear him stop a cue or hear things go wrong or all of that. And you could, and I could hear the music clean. That's and so uh, cool. it's a fascinating experience. But it also just showed that much like Herman, he had a sense that this was of some importance. Now, and he wasn't pretentious about it, but he sure. just he, he, he wasn't undervalu undervaluing what he did either. And both of those guys, Herman and Steiner, both during their careers, uh, would show scenes. They, they gave a few lectures. I would give anything to have been at either of their mm. lectures. Wow. They would show a scene without music, and you'd hear the creaking you know, set, and there'd be the awkward pauses and the cuts between close-ups that were you know, often intentionally left a little wide for music. And then the scene would be played with the score. And I've read so many newspaper reports or thank you letters of people saying it was excruciating or it felt endless watching it the first time. And I couldn't believe how quickly it moved and how involved I was. And it was the same scene. That's, so, yeah. That's amazing. That's phenomenal. Let me, you know, we're getting close to having to wrap this up. This is so amazing. I could listen to hours. Of I didn't stuff. mean to take up so much of your time <laughs> no, tonight. No, Apologies, no, guys. It, no, it's great. But one question I had for you after I've, did all a bunch of research and stuff. Um, was there anything that surprised you? Uh, well, I guess everything surprised you, but was there anything that really surprised you that you found out about Max? Um, yeah, I did. I, you know, he's he's always been known as the studio guy, the guy who scored a million movies. I didn't know if he farmed out the work a lot of the time. He didn't. I was really astonished to see how conscientious he was. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you know hiring other people to do things when you need to. He did. If if the schedule is too short and on Gone with the Wind, when Cra David Oselznik was full on crazy by the time he he had Max working on that movie, and not only was Max scoring a four hour movie with about three three and a half hours of music. But Selznick was making him rescore every scene multiple times. Wow. So when the deadline, when they had that major Atlanta premiere that everybody in the world knew about, and they had right. to hit that date, Max had to give the themes out for the second half of the movie to a lot of the orchestrator composers, who were people like future Oscar winner Hugo Friedhofer, and they would work under his direction. But even then, he tried to to do as much as possible, and it was really just because time ran out. I was amazed that anyone could live 83 years and get so little sleep. What didn't surprise me, it did break my heart, and it is, it is the cautionary lesson of, of Max's life and one that we all know working in the business that we do is if you put all of your energy and all of your emotion and all of your heart into your work and you have people in your life around you, somebody's going to lose. And I don't want to say what happened in Max's yeah. life, but I will say, right? Uh, it, and, I, and, and I don't mean that as, an, as a criticism of anyone. It's just that we all have limited, finite hours on the earth. And I think that, if anything, Max was – he, he was so empathetic to characters in film and people in real life. And he was so energized 
by uh, he had strong drives in life. Every drive you could mention <laughs> drove him, mm. but composing was one of them. And I think he really just was so, for all the complaining he'd do about it, understandably, uh, the hours they made him do and how much they made him do, he loved it. And the people in his life suffered because of that. So his life was really like a Warner Brothers melodrama or biopic in that you have this incredible success the greatest success a try we haven't even talked about the fact that the that at age 71 this austrian symphonic composer wrote what billboard magazine says is the biggest selling instrumental of the rock and roll era in the theme from a summer place yeah. 1959 which is so weird and an accidental thing saved him financially after years of debt but he he made so he had such success and Although his life had great happiness and joy, it had great tragedy, and uh, it's that mixture, that bittersweet quality of it, uh, and it didn't destroy him. And he lived after the tragedies, and right. and uh, but it, it reminded me that we all have to step back, even when we really love something, and make sure that the people who are around us are getting the attention they need. Balance, just particularly now. Balance, particularly, particularly now. During this, there was balance. Yeah. Well. Stephen, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking about your book. And once again, the book is not King Kong. <laughs> well, he's in there a lot. Hold on. Uh, let me... And show the, can you show the math, uh, a couple of the other Max pictures just to show he's not a really super serious guy? Maybe you yeah. can throw those on later. Or you can cut out half of what I said and let these far more knowledgeable people on screen talk. No, here we go. I'll, I'll, I'll be the least offended. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you the because uh, I can put an edit. So, I so, put, so this will be an edit, but I'll show you. This is your he book looks cover. very stern there. He's having a bad day at the Hollywood Bowl. Frank Sinatra has shown up late for the rehearsal, and it's not going to go well that day. Spoiler alert. <laughs> There he is feeling very confident having signed a big contract uh, with Selznick International in 1936. He's going to go gambling that night, I think, and lose everything he made. <laughs> Here he is conducting Gone with the Wind. He was not a tall man, but a big, big presence. So good. And he was also a goof. Oh, here he is with Fred Astaire and Mark Sandridge, who directed Top Hat and a lot of the best of the Astaire Rogers films. Max was the uh, musical director of the Astaire Rogers movies, was a very wow. important part of those. And there's Casablanca, which he loved doing. He fell in. He, he would fall in love with his leading ladies like many composers would. I mean, from a distance, you know, and really write <laughs> from the heart for them. And and he could write for Rick Blaine. Uh, Max's wife had left him at the time he scored it, so I think he really related to that cynical, funny, bitter, romantic character that Bogart played. And there's Kong. And uh, maybe, and and he was a goofball, and he had a silly side. And here he is with Freddie Fleck, an assistant director at RKO, and he just was for a very serious composer. He could be a really fun-loving guy, so that's why I like that picture. That's a great. <laughs> that's a great picture. It's a reminder to have fun while you're working, right? <laughs> that's right. This is supposed to be fun. Let me tell you, once once you start, like I just started you know, listening to King Kong and you listen to some of these other movies that he's been, you really realize that A, he really did, you know, invent the grammar of, of film scoring. Yeah. But Instinctively B, with no time, yes. <laughs> but, but B, you also notice that, you know, if you go into some of the modern uh, movies that we have, sometimes it just gets a little crowded. Like, there's a time where you can just, like the overscore, this is this overscore sometimes. I wish more yeah. directors would it let scenes breathe a little well 
quite often when we are noticing like a big score, yeah, it's because the composer has, has been told, and this happened to Max and Herman and is happening today somewhere. This movie is a, we had a disastrous preview. You've got to score this scene and save us, <laughs> save us. Every composer has, has heard the phrase save us. And uh, that happens a lot. And, and just in terms of talking about, you know, then and now, I will, I will close by saying that when they were temp tracking Star Wars, and they wanted to convey what the movie felt like. They used some of Holst's The Planets, a symphonic piece, and they used some Eric Wolfgang Korngold, the great composer of scores like Adventures of Robin Hood, and they used Max Steiner. So there's some Max Steiner DNA in Star Wars. <laughs> so it just, you know, it all ties together. That is the best way to end this whole segment. <laughs> Max DNA in Star Wars. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Max and talking about your book. Thank guys, you. Yeah. I will, thank, I'll sign off so you guys can talk about all these other things that uh, uh, Yeah, actually, you can just, just stay there because we're going to be wrapping it up. But uh, do you guys have any uh, comments or questions really quick for, uh, for Stephen before we uh, – or your own thoughts for or your own experiences. I was kind of hypnotized listening. It was great. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool to learn. Yeah. The thing Go that ahead. I was really ruminating. No, the thing I was ruminating about was this notion of, uh, you know, films being this sort of one and done thing, uh, and the idea of you know true art music versus versus film music. And and while I love these composers, don't get me wrong, I'm not wailing on them in any way because they're some of my favorites. It's like I wonder. How many people in the world have heard Pierre Boulez or Karl-Heinz Stockhausen or John Cage versus the people that have heard Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner and things like that? Well, right? you know, it does come down to taste, and I will tell you, I, I prefer the latter composers as, as pure music, and uh, I would no disrespect to Stockhausen and, yeah. and Boulez. But when Bernard Herrmann was asked by Francois Truffaut to score Fahrenheit 451 in 1966-67, Herman said to him, you're friends with Boulez, you're friends with Stockhausen. Why aren't, why aren't you asking them to score this movie? And Truffaut said, they will give me the music of the 20th century. You will give me the music of the 21st. Love it. And, and at first I thought, oh, and of course that's like, like, ooh, that's a great quote. And then I thought, yeah, futuristic music. And then I thought, no, we're in the 21st century. And Truffaut was right because that is the coin of the realm. That's the music that everyone knows in the world, not just because it's played all the time, but because Bernard Herrmann wrote a brilliant score for movie after movie and Max Steiner wrote brilliant scores. And we can name a hundred women and men who've written great scores. So, and that takes nothing away from the composers that you named. It's just a different medium. And I would say, mm -hmm. you know, and, and again, just one last time, Herman had the great point that not every great composer is a great dramatic composer right. and not every great dramatic, but Max Steiner didn't write a symphony because he knew that wasn't what he did best. He was inspired by seeing someone else's you know, emotional situation writing music to it. It's a little like, I think Stephen Sondheim once said, I can't write a love song, but if you tell me you want a song about somebody who's been waiting in a hotel in New York and someone hasn't shown up at three o'clock because, in other words, scenario, then you've got drama and he, and he can write a song. Right. And I think it's, it's a different kind of just creative impulse. And fortunately, we live in a world where we can hear Boulez's 
conducting and composing and all those things in a click. I mean, I, I do wish Max could know that you can click your smartphone and download <laughs> King Kong. King Kong played beautifully in a modern recording by my friend William T. Stromberg with the 100-piece orchestra that Max mm -hmm. wanted and not the 46 musicians RKO would pay for. So Max hired musicians who could play multiple instruments and put that one instrument down and pick up the other one so you could make it sound like the 100 people, you know, wow. anyway. <laughs> that, you know what, that's, that's the magic of, of film and the magic of, of scores for films is that, is that you just never know when you're going to get these little jams. You never know, you know, obviously Max invented the grammar, but then there's been some one-offs where composers have come oh, yeah. in. And amazing, amazing people job. now coming from different disciplines, different, I mean, in education yeah. experiences. One of my favorite, one of my all time favorite uh, music soundtracks is to live and die in LA, you know, and that was done yeah. by Wang Chung at the time. Right. 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 So Wang Chung comes out yep. and they're doing all their, their pop music and then they get asked yeah. to do, to do this score. And the funny story about that, and, and um, I'm working on a project where I interviewed Jack Hughes. Um, the uh, director told him, uh, I want you to write the theme song, but whatever you do, don't put the phrase to live and die in LA. <laughs> and, and so Jack said, that was the first thing we did. <laughs> yeah. So, but it, it's just scores. Right. These all film well, scores are awesome. Whether it's Wendy Carlos and Susie Siani mm -hmm. or, you know, Tron. I mean, there's yeah. just so many. So much. And, and you're so right about like break the rules because Alfred Hitchcock, when he showed Bernard Herrmann's Psycho and Hitchcock was not happy with the movie and he thought it was slow and he wanted to shorten it. And Herrmann said, don't shorten it yet. And Hitchcock said, do what you want. I trust you. The only thing is do not write any music for the shower scene. So what did Herman do? And and he did it in a way – exactly. And he didn't do it in a way of like, well, you're wrong. He right. They recorded the session, and in, in a rare moment of diplomacy, Bernard Herman said, you know, Hitch, I did write music for that scene. Obviously, you don't have to use it, but can I just play it for you? And we know what happened after that. Hitchcock for once admitted, you're right, I'm wrong. That's going in. That's oh, fantastic. <laughs> Let me just tell you, this conversation was probably the smartest thing we've ever talked about. <laughs> We're not, between you, Nick, and, and you, Stephen, when you were talking about those composers, I my IQ just went up like 10 points. So I just went up. Oh, that's, I was going to say, that's how I feel watching your podcast. So I just feel, I felt like an imposter being here. Thank you for letting me feel like Jeez. I belong. No, no, you're, you're not, like, I literally, your knowledge has been great. Let me just tell you, I got to tell these guys, like when I used to work with Steven, we would have talks about old time radio shows because I had quietly so that you know I, I yeah. they didn't think get rid of that guy. I had I had a, a massive um, drive uh, two hours every day to and from, and so I got into old time radio because I was just amazed at the sound and the sound effects and all that stuff that was going on live. Like when they can, you know. Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and they're doing these ships that get stuck in ice, and they're doing this all live as they're doing these radio shows. It was amazing. So anyhow, we had some great conversations. So Stephen is, is it was just amazing, and I was so I'm so glad your book came out and the success you. it's had, and and uh, just congratulations. That was I, I am phenomenal. Literally honored to be with with all of you and such a, an a, a, a incredible group of of talents here tonight. Thanks for thanks for letting me join you. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, before we go, really quick, uh, anybody working on anything they can talk about? Brandon, you working on anything fun and exciting? I uh, actually am just launching into a new sound effects collection. It's going to be a uh, fight sequence sound effects. So 
I'm doing a bunch of, you know, recordings right now and uh, just downloading different fight scenes from movies that I'm going to design too. And then, you know, um, so yeah, just putting that together. So I'll be in that world for about two months. Nice. Well, great. <laughs> just in time so that I can go, hey, Brandy, do you have a good hey, Brandy. <laughs> uh, How about you, Nick? You working on anything fun and exciting? Well, I'm working on, yes, I'm working on something very fun. So as we're recording this, today's what, December 10th? I think. Yes. Um, so two weeks from Christmas. And uh, we decided two days ago that, uh, you know, people are sad enough. And so I, I put back together again, the choir that uh, we used to sing with at Disney, which of course has been shut down for eight months or so. And uh, on a, you know, just right on a bet, we decided that we were going to start recording some Christmas carols, which we oh. will do. Everyone will, you know, shoot themselves onto their iPhone on Saturday, send me all the stuff. And then on Monday and Tuesday, I'll edit them together, turn them into videos and try to um, get them so that Disney can post them for, you know, all of the cast members that work around Disney to put a little smile on people's faces before uh, before everything shuts down for the holidays. So that was just a sweet thing. Um, oh, that's great. It was, you know, Carol of the Bells is one of the songs we're doing, and I always thought it was the cheesiest sort of tune, you know. Well, if you listen to the overall orchestration, I mean, when you actually see the way that the different um, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass come together, it's a gorgeous jigsaw puzzle. It's just that, you know, that one little sort of melodic element. But once you step back a little, it's like, wow, this piece of music is really great. That's that's amazing. That's great. How about you, Rob? You working on anything you can talk about? I know you had that big presentation, right? 10,000 people. Yeah, I was part of the uh, jazz conference and that was really fun. Uh, I was worried about people peppering me with questions that uh, were like too out of left field, but it was, it was fine. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and I think that's still available online. The Jazz Master Summit, people can go and uh, join up. And they had a ton of really amazing interviews. I was much more a spectator than a participant. It was really cool. But <laughs> I, uh, my segment went well. And now I'm working, uh, actually working with a new artist on uh, some career guidance, a little bit of music, but more uh, some career guidance. And some of it is uh, things I'll be able to talk about in the new year a lot more, a lot of exciting things going on. And I would also say, uh, one of the things I want to say when we were still talking about composers, one of the composers who gets overlooked a lot, and I'm a huge fan, was Carl Stalling. From oh, yeah. Warner Brothers cartoons and stuff. Genius. I used to listen to his scores just for entertainment because he was the closest I ever thought uh, a composer got to where you could not have the visual and the story would be told exactly the same. Yeah. His stuff was so nuanced and so detailed. Yeah. He knew every single bit of the action without having to see the action. Yeah. I mean, he got, he got a lot of respect, but I think a lot of people undervalue, oh, it's just cartoons. I don't oh. think I realize well. Now you can sell out the Hollywood Bowl, though. You know, I'm so glad all those concerts, like Bugs Bunny in concert, have shown uh, how great that music is. And you know, how did most people learn hear their first Wagner? Kill the Wabbit, right? Exactly. If you haven't been to one of those uh, shows where they sync the live music with the the screen, you should because it's incredible. That's great. Well, that's awesome. That is really really cool. Are you up to there, uh, Mike? Uh, well, I'm up to a couple things. Uh, First, right off the bat, uh, working on the Mega Spaces audio nowcast around the world. I was supposed to I was supposed to release it in December, but I pushed it to January because I just got too many things going on. Um, and then we're going to be changing some stuff on uh, on the podcast, the Nowcast Network, and uh, we're going to produce some more content for it. We're going to start a little Patreon thing just to kind of help you know um, offset some of the uh, costs 
for the new content that we're going to do because we're going to do some new content. And it was all inspired by all this stuff that I was doing with Bliss and was doing uh, around the world and things like that. So I did not cast on around the world, 60 minutes, but it's probably going to be like 85 because <laughs> we went to a lot of studios and I'm chopping and I'm chopping and I'm like, I can't chop anymore. So that's why it's taking so long. So it's, it's kind of fun. Um, so other than that, just trying to be lean and clean and, uh, you know, get rid of some gear. So there you go. How's that for bringing it all the way back? <laughs> anything new with you, uh, Steve? What, are you working on anything you want to... Uh... Oh, thank you. No, I'm, I, I, it's so strange. I thought I'd spend this year going to uh, bookstores and libraries promoting a book. Instead, I'm yeah. doing like webinars like every week and podcasts talking to people in Australia and I'm doing a London talk on Steiner soon. And I, I kind of love that part of it. I mean, believe me, I can't yeah. wait till we're back to a, whatever the next version of the normal world is, but I hope we can keep this aspect where, I mean, I wouldn't have been here talking with you tonight probably right. if this hadn't happened. So I would love to uh, see this aspect of, uh, of what's come out of it, you know, continue. So that's, that's what my world is like yours, a, a virtual one uh, dealing with microphones, but getting to talk about something I love and uh, with, with interesting people. Stephen, well, have you shot a? Oh, I just want curious. Have you shot an audiobook version of your book? No, I haven't. But actually, uh, there's a. It's funny when I wrote the Herman book, a group in New York was making a documentary about Herman, and they brought me on as consultant, and that got an Oscar nomination and, and did well. Weirdly, for a composer, Max Steiner, who will have passed on 50 years next year, he died in 1971. Weirdly, as I was writing this book, a, an, an editor filmmaker named Diana Friedberg started making a Max Steiner documentary so huh. i'm in it and uh i think it's just now down to the you know clearance film clearances and music clearances because they're easy right i mean let's use a clearance movie clearance, no problem there so <laughs> no so once uh, once we have movie theaters open again hopefully there will be a uh, you know history story of max steiner film to accompany my book but thank you for asking nick uh i i will happily come over and read the book to anyone who wants it but i don't think they want to be around for that long plus the cat has to come with me so <laughs> that's great hey uh, uh one thing that i wanted to ask you is let us know when you're doing one of those web webinars because that would be great i would really like to oh. know be, be, it is Max often thought, be careful what you wish for. So I, no, I will I'm, do that, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Thank it's, you. It's great. I've seen, uh, since we're Facebook friends, I've seen a couple things go by, you know, but. Uh, it's fun when you can, you know, wanna... share some of the music. And there have been so many good re-recordings recently uh, of, of the music out there. Yeah. So anyway, thanks. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Well, hey, uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. I want to tell uh, everybody that, you know, you can find all our podcasts on audionowcast.com for those who just watched the video. Um, and we're going to be switching. We have uh, the podcast on IGTV, Instagram TV, but I'm going to be switching it to YouTube because Instagram TV still has the hour uh, cutoff. And some of the really good podcasts go like, you know, 62 minutes, 63 minutes. This one were 70 minutes and it's all gold. So uh, I'll do a cut down version on IGTV, but you can watch us on YouTube and leave a comment and question there. All right, gang. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Steven, thank you once again. And My for pleasure. myself and everybody, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. We're waiting for our Christmas cookies showing. 
Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbitier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time.